The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Good evening. It is my uh, honor to welcome Sherry Mables back to the Twin Cities, and we're very happy to have her here. For this evening, the public talk, and tomorrow, the Day of Mindfulness. Common Ground Meditation Center and the Blooming Heart Sangha have collaborated to um, bring Sherry here, and we are uh, we welcome you here, and all of you here this evening. Sherry Maples is a Dharma teacher, a keynote speaker, and an organizational consultant and trainer. Can everyone hear me? Okay, thank you. In 2008, she was ordained as a Dharma teacher by the Zen master Thich Han, a longtime spiritual teacher of hers. For 25 years, Sherry worked in the criminal justice system as an assistant attorney general in the Wisconsin Department of Justice, head of probation and parole in the Wisconsin Department of Corrections, and as a police officer with the Madison Police Department, earning the rank of captain as personnel and training. She is an attorney and a clinical social worker in the state of Wisconsin. Don't hold it against me. <laughs> From these experiences and out of her mindfulness experiences, Sherry organized a retreat in Green Lake, Wisconsin in 2003, in which Thich Nhat Hanh came and um, it was focused on mindfulness uh, for police officers and criminal justice professionals. This retreat was then the focus of a segment with NPR's um, Speaking of Faith, and was also the inspiration for Thich Nhat Hanh's book, Keeping the Peace, Mindfulness, and Public Service. In 2009, Sherry and her partner, Maureen Brady, opened the Center for Mindfulness and Justice. In addition to retreats and mentoring, the Center offers mindfulness instruction, presentations, and consulting and training for criminal justice professionals and other folks in other arenas. Sherry co-leads meditation retreats with Sharon Salzberg, Tara Brock, and many others. In recent years, she's been merging her understanding of the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh, who's also known as Thai, which means teacher, with her experience and practice in Vipassana, and uh, merging this into Thaipasana, as I understand. <laughs> This is the fourth time um, that she's been in retreat with the Blooming Heart Sangha, and we are very happy to, to be with her again. Before I turn this over to Sherry, I would just like to share two quotes, and the first is from Tara Brock, who is the author of Radical Acceptance and founder of the Insight Meditation Community of Washington. In one visit, Sherry Maples consulted diligently on organizational issues with our board of directors, delivered an inspiring Dharma talk as a guest teacher, and provided a powerful 
and insightful mindfulness workshop on privilege and oppression for the leadership and diversity sanghas. In each, one could feel the strength of her practice, the depth of her wisdom, and her embodiment of the Dharma. And finally, I want to share a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. This is from her 2008 ordination as a Dharma teacher in a ceremony called the Transmission of the Lamb. Sherry, we were very happy when you came to us with the idea to bring the mindfulness practice to law enforcement. We encourage you to bring all you have learned about the practice of mindfulness and peace into the field of criminal justice. We all must have a spiritual practice so as not to burn out in our service to others. This lamp is a token of the love and trust we have in you. Through your practice and efforts, this lamp will shine for a long time. Knowing that actions are part of the circle of causes and effects, at a retreat like this, I, I imagine a pebble entering and rippling the waters. May your pebble this evening, Sherry, um, ripple these waters to the benefit of all beings. We bow deeply to you. Well, good evening. It's my pleasure to be here with you. I have enjoyed the my times with the Blooming Hearts Sangha, and I'm really grateful that uh, it has expanded to the common ground community now. So thank you very much for, for having me. Okay. Thank you all for coming out. Uh, tonight what I want to talk to you about is how to use mindfulness as a tool to bring skillful action to troubled or challenging times in both our individual and our collective lives. And let's start out by talking about how our personal and collective transformations inter are, how they are related to one another. I find uh, that way too many people create this artificial barrier between their inner work on personal transformation and their efforts to transform society. So on one end of the continuum, we have people who believe that the best way to transform society is to transform themselves uh, individually. And on the other end of the continuum, we have social and political activists who dismiss the importance of inner work, some as the self-indulgent arena of the privileged and others as the kooky realm of the out-of-touch bleeding hearts. Uh, and the rest of us are in the middle. But regardless of what your political affiliation is, both inner work and engaged social and political action are important. So to affect change of any meaningful kind, we have to first address the essential spiritual disconnect that exists between our personal experiences and our professional work, our behavior at home, our behavior in the workplace, 
and our collective work together. And what I've discovered in my own life is that the work has to take place concurrently in three different arenas for anything meaningful to happen. So the first and foundational area is definitely our own inner work. Practices that help us recognize our habitual patterns. Practices that help us work with our healthy and unhealthy patterns of the mind are crucial to our individual transformation and our collective transformation. What happens out there in the world of relationships? And there are certainly lots of tools for doing that. They're not confined to meditation and mindfulness. However, I will say that meditation and mindfulness are the best tools that I've found uh, for this purpose because they encourage a sense of both things that are important. On the one hand, reflection, and on the other hand, a wholehearted presence that is extremely important. So that's the first area, our inner work. The second area is in our interpersonal conduct, in our personal, professional, and organizational lives. Relationship is always the litmus test of spirituality. And it's one thing to sit on the cushion or chair and feel this wonderful compassion for others in this nurturing world of, of silence. And it's quite another thing to maintain it while interacting with others on a daily basis, where our dysfunctional habit energy is likely to be very, very strong. And we have to learn to personally interact with each other in ways that are ethical, in ways that are collaborative, and in ways that are cooperative. Because if our strength doesn't come from our connection to each other, it easily descends into aggression and control and striving and rigidity in our personal relationships with one another. And striving and competing are certainly applauded in our worlds. But the end result is usually not collaboration. And there's nothing wrong with trying hard. There's nothing wrong at all with trying hard and doing our best, which is an element of competition. The part that's a little bit problematic is when we have to secretly hope others don't do as well as we do. It's hard to stand for other people's greatness. It's hard to collaborate with them if that's the case. And it's also important to recognize power dynamics. It doesn't matter whether we're parents, teachers, cops, helping professionals, or bosses of any kind in the organizations and worlds that we are part of. Many of us exercise significant power over others that we often don't recognize. And others are very vulnerable to how we hold this power, how we wield this power, how we exercise this power. They turn to us and they trust us to use our knowledge and expertise in good faith. And if we're not aware of how we are exercising this power, we can do real damage to others. So that's the second arena, interpersonal relationships. The third arena is the larger political and social arena or our collective efforts to transform society. And without a profound commitment to personal transformation, we're certainly not going to change the destructive patterns of society if we can't change them within the spaces of our own hearts and our families and our workplaces. 
And regardless of whether we're committed to peace work, to anti-oppression or anti-discrimination efforts, to universal health care, to excellent schools in every community, to affordable housing, to affordable higher education, or ending the assault on the environment, our efforts have to occur within a framework of a personal commitment to ending our own violence and aggression. If we work for any of these issues out of anger, we'll never succeed and we'll lose our own well-being in the process. I'm convinced that these conflicts we see between people, whether it's in a family, whether it's in a workplace, whether it's in a community, whether it's on a county board, or whether it's a conflict between country, countries in the form of war or terrorism. These are reflections of our own inner fears and conflicts. So we need to all take some responsibility for transforming our own fear and anger, as well as helping others do the same. And that is what will make a meaningful difference. And until this happens, we're going to continue to do what we do today. And that's marginalize and eliminate compassion in the public conversation. The fear among our current elected officials on the local level, on the state level, on the national level, as well as many others in positions of power is the compassion will be seen as a sign of weakness that others will sniff out and use to discredit us. And they continue to get promoted, appointed, and elected because they reflect our collective fears. We also have a culture much more interested in individuality than its interdependence. And as a result, this culture conditions us to overvalue individuality in a manner that denies our interdependence with one another. So we not only reinforce self-interest and isolation from each other, but every person individually, each sector, each agency, each community is focused on its own self-interest. And in an individualistic country, the fabric of community simply does not get built. And it's all about creating and maintaining a competitive advantage for ourselves. And none of us are immune from the hard choices and dilemmas that we face in this area. I think of how many of us understand interdependence in a manner where we understand that if I have too much, somebody else might have too little. Rich people create poor people. Democrats create Republicans. And so on and so on and so on. However, when it comes to our own, our own, me, mine, children and grandchildren, how many of us don't do everything we can to give them a competitive advantage? and want them to have a competitive advantage in terms of the schools they go to, the colleges they go to. So what we see is we see the flight of the rich to gated communities where they can send their children to private schools. And we see the flight of the middle class to the suburbs for better public schools. And for every city that prospers, for every school that prospers, there's another city or school nearby paying the price. 
So for the activist committed to mindfulness, the individual and the collective, or the I and the we, are profoundly interdependent. And compassion flows from this understanding of our interdependence with one another and using this interdependence as our starting point. So now I'd like to use this framework of these three arenas that I just laid out to talk more specifically about how the practice of mindfulness changed my personal life at home and at work, how it changed my career, and how it changed how I view public safety in the political and social arena. So my own story is just one example of how mindfulness can be integrated into our personal lives, into our careers, into our work for transformation and change. So let's start with the first arena of how mindfulness changed my inner personal life. Last time I actually gave a public talk rather than leading the retreat, uh, I think was in 2009 uh, in, the, in the cities. And then I shared my own recipe for the creation of an angry, alcoholic, cynical cop with the armor of a closed heart. And I'm not going to repeat that talk, but I do want to recap some of the parts of the story that I think are common to many of us. For the early part of my career, when I look back on it, especially the first seven years, I think I was on, and I was a cop for 20 years, I was on what I now recognize to be this destructive biological roller coaster that was the result of the adrenaline that happened in my life. And that was in response to a couple of things. First, the hypervigilance that's required as a cop just to keep yourself and others safe. But second, the adrenaline that is required to live a life on fast forward, where one is multi multitasking all the time. And most of us are on this biological roller coaster to one degree or another without knowing it. And research has shown that when you function on an infusion of adrenaline at work, regardless of whether it's from hypervigilance uh, or regardless of whether it's from multitasking and going very, very fast, that what happens is you live up here for a short period of time. The adrenaline shoots up. But what goes up has to do what? What goes up must come down. And what research has shown is that it takes approximately 24 hours for our bodies to come back to a relatively normal state after that kind of infusion of adrenaline. But what happens for most of us is that before that 24 hours is up, we do what? We repeat the whole cycle, right? And I was very unconscious about this cycle and the havoc that it was wreaking on me until I slowed down enough to be able to reflect on what was happening. Go to work and feel alert, energized, and awake. Come home and feel tired, irritable, and look for something to cut the edge. Go to work, be up here from the adrenaline, come home, be down here. And down here mimics a lot of the symptoms of depression. 
And when you don't have the insight to help you understand what's happening, a couple of things can occur. First, you can start to rely on a variety of dysfunctional coping mechanisms. Drugs, alcohol, addictions of any kind. Spend all your time on the internet or watching TV and just sluggishly channel surfing. Um, for myself, it was hard for me to come home and even make a decision about where to go to eat if I didn't want to cook. Ever had that conversation with your partner? What do you want? What do you want to do about dinner? I don't know. Well, you decide. No, I didn't. no, you decide. I can't decide. Somebody finally makes the decision, and the other person says, "I don't want to do that." <laughs> so, you know, what I also see is people engaging, especially many of my coworkers, many of, of the cops that I watched, um, in risky behaviors that will activate that upper part of the cycle. And these are all strategies that offer very quick and temporary ways to cut the edge. But the real cost is that they sap and they close down the energy of the heart in ways that we don't even know are happening. So that's the first set of things that can happen. The second set of things is that we begin to mistakenly project the reasons for the down part of that cycle onto our families because we associate the down part of the cycle with being with them. And as they constantly get the short end of the stick because you're with them for the bottom of the cycle, resentment and conflict can start to become the norm. And then the risks are particularly acute for crisis responders who are responsible for the safety of others. doesn't matter if they're emergency personnel and in a hospital, uh, social workers, cops, ambulance drivers. There are all kinds of people that respond to, to crisis. And what happens is when they're responsible for the safety of others and they're exposed to things and, and people at their worst, they can experience trauma incrementally over time that often goes unnoticed. We have a whole field of literature about this now called secondary trauma. Uh, some people call it compassion fatigue. And likewise, many helping professionals in caring for others expose themselves daily and repetitively and cumulatively to the violence and exploitation that permeates the lives of the people that they serve. And as the atrocities become familiar, and repetitive, suffering becomes routine, as does our response to it. So mindfulness really calls for us to be more aware of how vulnerable we are to this cycle and how vulnerable those we serve are to whether or not this exposure is properly managed. And the personal costs also turn into organizational costs in the form of employees getting stuck in repetitive dramas with their coworkers, with their bosses, or starting down a, a slippery slope of, well, what are you doing for me today? I'm going to go out and take that hour and a half lunch or that two-hour lunch or that free cup of coffee or whatever it is. Adding to this is that for many of us, what I've really begun to notice is that for many of us, we don't give 
legitimacy or it's very difficult for us to give legitimacy to our own suffering as witnesses because those we're providing services for and those around us suffer so much more. So who are we to complain or feel anything? And we start making critical judgments about whether we're entitled to feel any distress whatsoever. In the professional, organizational, and societal context in which we provide these services often exacerbate these judgments. So professionally, we're often in a position that demands empathy and helping others understand that the expression of their emotion is healthy. That paying attention to their hearts is healthy, it's important. And in our role as professionals, strong emotions are often construed as a sign of weakness and a lack of objectivity in a very interesting way. And organizationally, we often find ourselves as part of a larger culture that makes it difficult to accept our very own predictable symptoms that develop in response to the work itself. I know certainly in my own police department, and I was there for, like I said, 20 years, discrediting and suggestions of unfitness for the job were common responses to anybody who had a distress reaction. And without good navigation tools, incremental trauma like this eventually takes its toll. Physiologically, it takes its toll in the form of that biological roller coaster that I just talked about. Emotionally, it often manifests as irritation, as anger, as impatience, and or depression. And spiritually, is the biggest cost because it often manifests as a numbing or an armoring of the heart. And I certainly experienced everything that I'm talking about. I'm talking right now from my personal experience of what occurred to me. And over time, the path, this path of mindfulness that I found almost by mistake or a miracle, depending upon your, how you look at things, it doesn't really matter. But it, it cultivated my ability to pay attention to notice and observe my inner world in a very powerful way. And what that did is it provided me with some refuge from that habit energy that used to toss me around so much like a tornado. Just react, react, react. So mindfulness, what is it for those of you that are new to it? Mindfulness is about developing the being mode of mind rather than just the doing mode of mind. So the doing mode of mind is the one we're familiar with. It involves things like careful analysis, problem solving, judgment, comparison, evaluation. We rely on the doing mode. It's not a bad thing. We rely on it for competency, for our professional success, and just to manage the daily details of our lives. A lot of the incredible uh, progress we've made is a result of the doing mode of mind. So whether we're planning on how to advocate for a client, how to market something, how to build a bridge, or simply manage the, de the simple details of our life, this doing mind is often in overdrive with planning and multitasking. 
The being mode that mindfulness cultivates is the exact opposite of this. Rather than thinking about things from a problem-solving mode, we experience them direct, directly. So we're, we're training for a stability of mind that can hold everything we experience without attempting to fix it, to suppress it, or to erase it. And again, it's not that the doing mode of mind is a problem. It's that it is overdeveloped at the expense of the being mode of mind. And the being mode is so important because that's what allows you to be present. When I say we're coming back to the breath, we're integrating, we're integrating energy. We're cultivating attention and concentration because if you can pay more attention to just one breath than you can all your fantasies and all your judgments and all your evaluations and all your planning. I guarantee you, you'll be able to pay more attention to the person in front of you, to the thing that you're involved in, and to doing anything with your complete and total presence and dedication. And this belief in the overdevelopment of the doing mode, it's not just reflected for all of us individually. It's reflected for us also in the cultural emphasis on problem solving, individual achievement, and accomplishment. Hence, the focus in the collective area, like the individual area, is on how to correct deficiencies, on what you cannot do rather than what you can do. And the dominant mindset of our culture is that defining, analyzing, and studying problems is the way to make a better world. It's certainly one way. But that marginalizes not only our associational life, but creative possibility thinking about what can be, about what is possible. So the practice of mindfulness is a tool to learn how to balance the being mode with the doing mode in not just our individual lives, but in our collective lives also. And the intention in mindfulness practice isn't to forcibly control the mind in any way, but to perceive clearly its healthy and unhealthy patterns. And the attitude is one of kindness. It's one of openness. It's one of acceptance so that we can see what is here to be discovered and be with it without so much struggling. And while trying hard, we'll work in the doing mode, where we're accomplishing projects, where we're relying on it for our project mentality. Trying hard will not work in developing the being mode of mind. That's why so many people give up on meditation. They bring that doing mode of mind, wanting those results, to the being mode, where it just doesn't apply. So with mindfulness, what we start to learn is that much of our ill-being simply comes from our reactivity and our discontentment with what simply is. And we eventually learn about relaxing. Not just relaxing with our next breath, but relaxing with grief, relaxing with death, not resisting the fact that things end that everything is changing all the time. Life is always going to throw us some curve to work with. 
We don't get the job or promotion we know we deserve. Our boss is driving us crazy. A beloved child develops an an addiction or a chronic physical or mental illness. We get divorced. We age. We develop illnesses. The people we love get sick and die. That happens to all of us. The point is that the form does not matter. Mindfulness teaches us that whatever occurs is our life. No matter how wonderful or how painful, that is the path and all things are workable. As my teacher Ty says, folks, like it or not, this is it. This is it. Redemption does not lie in the outer circumstances of your life or in the future when a better you or a better them will emerge, right? (laughs) And our redemption as well as our joy and liberation rely in the only place that it can be found in the present moment. Because if it doesn't lie here, we'll always be in the future or in the past. Life is life. It's both joyful and challenging. Sometimes it's sweet, sometimes it's bitter, but it's always a little messy. You can count on that. And trying to tie up all the loose ends and finally getting it together is not only futile, but it's like death because it involves rejecting a lot of our basic experience. And as our practice develops, we begin to notice all the little ways that we perpetuate violence on ourselves. Eventually, we learn to simply let go. And not from a place of resignation, but from a profound understanding of this experience of being simply human, of the holiness of our imperfections, from an understanding of the nature of our inherent goodness and how life actually is. And we begin to let go of our stories about why we're not good enough. And we begin to notice when we are caught internally by either praise or blame or some other form of gaining or losing. Or when we are attached to some external outcome that we simply cannot control. Mindfulness is a very powerful thing because it teaches us how to develop the awareness that's required to selectively water the seeds we want to grow grow stronger in ourselves and others. And that is so important. We'll be talking about that more tomorrow. We learn how to reclaim our life by watering the seeds that bring joy. Not just within us, but others by the way we treat them. And we learn to pay attention to what it is that we're feeding in ourselves as well as other people. So what we do and what we feed in this present moment plants the seeds for the future. So you can ask yourself, am I watering kindness? Am I watering doubt? Am I watering trust? Am I watering blame? And when we make conscious choices in this manner, we don't experience the ethical residue of regret that occurs each time we make an unskillful choice or engage in an unskillful behavior or action. You know, when I was a a little girl, I used to love cowboys. And the cowboys had a saying that I think of a lot these days. 
if you're riding a dead horse dismount. <laughs> I love that. If you're riding a dead horse dismount. Sometimes it's that easy. So mindfulness teaches us deep lessons about how energy follows thought. When I came home from my very first mindfulness retreat in 1991, it was a seven-day silent retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh. And in those days, he wasn't very well known, so it was a relatively small group. When I came home and went back out on the street as a cop, I couldn't figure out why everybody had changed. They got so much kinder in my absence. Um, Even the people I was arresting were nicer. I was wondering if somebody went around and sprayed Prozac everywhere while I was gone or what. But it was really noticing how powerful, how different people were responding to me. I started realizing that it wasn't because of my absence, but my presence. There was a whole different kind of energy that I was putting out. And it was the beginning of my understanding that making a conscious choice to live life from a foundation of inner peace changes everything. And that that first glimpse didn't last. But it gave me a taste of something that I wanted to keep coming back to over and over. It was so much more satisfying, my job, dealing with people, dealing with coworkers. I slowed down. I took my time. I didn't worry so much about if I was going to be judged for not getting right back out on the street as quickly as possible. People became more precious to me. And living a more content, joyful, and happy life, it won't happen because we've been preparing our whole lives either to be able to relax or live a better life in the future. It won't happen because we're successful professionals. It won't happen because we're caught up in our anxieties about the past or the future. A nurse by the name of Bronnie Ware, who worked with the dying for many years, has has written a, a wonderful book about the top five regrets of the dying. She recorded them over the years. And here they are. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself rather than the life others expected of me. Here was the top one for men. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Then I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I had stayed in touch with the people that were important to me. And the last one, which was very common and really got my attention, was I wish I had chosen to be happier. People at the end of their lives understand that happiness is in fact a choice and regretted staying stuck in old habits, patterns, and ways of being. And this is a great reminder that we may have ideas about our happiness that include a certain standard of living, a job, a relationship, or thing we have to have, if not for ourselves for our children, for our family, then it is often our idea about happiness that prevents us from being happy and present to the people we love and care about. It's so important not to become an habitual waiter. 
somebody that's always waiting for it to get better. It's so important not to make the things that matter the most at the mercy of the things that matter the least. If you don't do it now, then when? If not now, then when? And if not you, then whom? In my own life, the inner work has been the foundation of everything else I've done. It's the foundation that everything stands on. And over time, it didn't happen if I look back a few weeks or a few months. I didn't see any differences. But when I look back over those 20 years now, or 21 years, I can see that it bore fruit in the, in the form of an awakened heart, a commitment to set my life up, to cultivate some equanimity and water the seeds of happiness and joy faith in my ability to make friends with whatever happens in my life and the confidence that comes from inner integrity and leading a more ethical life. Now with respect to the second area of relationships, as I begin bringing my mindfulness practice to my relationships, I begin enjoying people much more. I begin enjoying both going to work and coming home. And it showed up, like I said, in my interactions with not just my family, but my coworkers, my friends, and my interactions with people on the street. And by the last five years of, of my police career, as the captain of, of personnel and training, it also manifested in the hiring criteria that I used, as well as how police officers and other criminal justice professionals were trained. I realized. Even back then, uh, this was in about 2000, and I, and I had that job for five years, uh, that we were doing a great, when I came into training, I thought, we're doing a great job of teaching officers the technical competency required to keep themselves and others safe. But that's not where we're losing, where we're losing them. You know, yes, we had officers get hurt on the job. And yes, there were some tragedies that occurred. But we were losing them emotionally. Three to four times as many of them were taking their own lives as were being hurt or killed in the line of duty. Hence, the training, in my mind, had to reflect this reality. And in terms of my relationship, relationships with others, it's very easy for me to identify the single most important benefit of my own mindfulness practice. And over time, even as a cop who carried a gun on a daily basis, I started to experience the incredible healing power of non-aggression. I continued to find deeper and more meaningful levels to practice not causing harm to myself and others. So I've become convinced that the most important way each of us can work for peace and justice is by skillfully not contributing to violence in any form. So the manner in which we talk to and relate to one another is probably the most important peace work that any of us can engage in. Often, even those of us committed to nonviolence go to war on a daily basis with other people, with our words, with how we talk to each other, with our need to be right. 
And we have to learn the difference between doing the next right thing and righteousness. They're very, very different. So when I tightly hang on to my version of the truth, I erect this barrier of dogma, of righteousness, or blame that keeps me from communicating effectively with others. I fortify it with my concepts of who's right and who's wrong. And in our interior landscape, these are barriers that prevent us from uncovering our wounds, from uncovering the softness of the tenderness of our own hearts. You ever been in that place where you're trying to convince people that their view of something is wrong or their memory of something is wrong and yours is right? How'd that work for you? <laughs> I remember when I was uh, uh, I remember when I was a young recruit. It was so interesting. My very I'm I'm a rookie now. I'm not a recruit. I'm ready to be on the street. My very first week on the job, the lieutenant says to me, "Hey Maples, there's somebody out in the basement. I don't want him." Uh, I don't want him uh, around our squad cars and I don't want him around our property room. Go down there and get him out. So I go down there and this guy um, tells me he doesn't have to leave because he's the President of the United States and he can be (laughs) wherever he wants. And so here I am trying to convince him that he's not the President of the United States. So I'm still arguing with him, right, when, when briefing is over. So briefing is done. One of the veteran officers walks right back past me, gets the key to the car, says, hey, rookie, let me show you how it's done. Goes over to the squad car, opens the back door and says, Mr. President, your limo awaits you. <laughs> guy gets right in and drives out. Very, very important lesson for me. Very important. <laughs> So it's only in an open space where I'm not all caught up in my own version of reality that I can see and hear and feel and touch who others really are. And that's what allows me to be in authentic communication and a respectful relationship with them. So when I hold on to my opinions with aggression, no matter how valid my cause, I'm simply adding aggression to the planet and violence and pain increase. Now this doesn't mean that I'm going to water the seeds of peace within myself and others at the expense of injustice or the exploitation of others. It's also important to examine who will suffer if I don't speak up. However, we can avoid complicity where we see injustice manifesting without demonizing and making others the enemy. And this is the essence of compassionate dialogue. We can transform violence by how we respond to it and how we witness it. In the larger social context, we're we're saturated by violence. It's everywhere. And the effects of experiencing it or witnessing some form of violence or exploitation are so common that they no longer even register. Most of us register the big things that experts call a trauma response, something that disrupts our fundamental sense of who we are, who others are, and our sense of safety and security. However, we also witness a broad range 
of other types of violence in our daily lives that may not even register as having an impact on another person or on us. So we're passive witnesses to things like seeing somebody be hostile or rude to a clerk, watching a, a security guard follow a person of color around the store when they walk in the door, watching one child bully another. And the awareness that one person was hurtful to another begins to roll right off of us because of how frequently we observe it. And violence can be transformed not by raising the ante with an eye for an eye, but in thoughtful and skillful action with respect to how we recognize it, how we bear witness to it, and how we respond to it. And in my own relationships, I've also come to understand that sometimes compassion has to be fierce. It's not always gentle. And the wisdom of skillful means calls for knowing when to employ the gentle compassion of understanding and the fierce compassion associated with setting high quality boundaries. So the difference between violence and fierce compassion starts with focusing on one's intention. So the action can be very smooth and gentle and still be violent. For example, if I'm in a workplace and I have a different opinion with somebody and I start praising my coworker in an attempt to manipulate them or recruit them to my own viewpoint, that to me, is an example of an action that's smooth and gentle but has a violent or manipulative intent. And likewise, fierce actions done with a positive intention are sometimes required to protect ourselves and other people, and not just by cops. When boundaries are set from a loving place, free of reactivity, free of anger, free of resentment. They're high-quality boundaries that will protect both the relationship and our love for the other person. I think of my youngest son, who's in his early 20s now. And I think of his teenage years, when his choices started driving me absolutely crazy. So, you know, he'd make this, what to me seemed like a ridiculous choice, and I'd react, and I'd say, this is how it's going to be. So I'd set my boundary. This is what you're going to do from now on, but I'd set it from an angry and reactive place. So guess what? I'd feel guilty about it. I'd take it back. <coughs> so what was I teaching him? I was teaching him a strategy that worked to just keep trying to wear me down, wear me down, wear me down. But... When I really started thinking about it and realized this, I thought, okay, what are, the, what are the real boundaries, the fewest number that I need to protect my love for this kid, to protect my relationship with him, and to protect him from engaging in unconscious behavior? Let me think about that. And for a while it got a lot worse before it got better. But once he realized I meant it, and I did it from a totally different place. 
we started having a very, very different relationship. So when boundaries are set from a loving place, that's what protects the integrity of the boundary. That's what protects the integrity of the boundary. It's so important. A boundary that is set with this kind of integrity provides the courage required to keep it. It's born not out of reactivity, but of our loving commitment to preserve the relationship in the long run and not water the unconscious habit energy of the person we're in relationship with. So only an unconscious person can be manipulative and only an unconscious person can be manipulated. I think it's really important to remember that. So with respect to the third arena, the collective, social, and political arena, we have to start with a deep understanding of our profound interdependence with one another. What we do affects others. And we are all responsible for what we build together, whether we are in education, whether we are in health care, whether we are in public safety, whether we are in the business or the nonprofit world. It's not just the leader's job. It's not just the boss's job to create the world that we want to live in. It can't simply be delegated to a leader. It's the responsibility of all of us. And let me illustrate how this played out in my own arena of public safety. And I want to encourage you to think about how you can bring your expertise to the world that you want to live in. So here's where I went in my world of public safety. As my mindfulness practice developed, I began to take very seriously the challenge of how to actually breathe life into the values that a democracy is built on. With the understanding that everybody has the basic right to feel safe and protected. And I began to realize that public safety is something that we all create together. It's not the police chief's job. It's not my neighbor's job to say, well, you're the cop. You take care of it. It's something that we are all responsible for. So our current cultural public safety context supports the belief that the future is going to be improved with new laws, with more oversight, and stronger leadership in terms of tougher enforcement. And as a result, our public safety strategies have led to an over-reliance on law enforcement arrest and suppress tactics, on tough and punitive mandatory sentencing schemes, on massive incarceration, and punitive community and institutional correctional practices. Our entire system rests on the assumption that the threat of arrest and punishment has a deterrent effect on crime. And research has shown the exact opposite, that most crimes are not rational or planned, but opportunistic and impulsive. And that our incarceration strategies are neither enhancing public safety 
nor are they very cost-effective for us as taxpayers. And ironically, at a time when violent crime in this country started actually decreasing, our incarceration rates started rapidly increasing. In addition, what I found uh, in the community corrections arena is that our strategies there aren't working either because revocations of parole and probation are the fastest growing category of prison admissions right now, at least in the state of, of Wisconsin. And I'm convinced that the sometimes conscious but often unconscious bias of most of us working in different parts of the system accounts for the enormous racial disparities throughout the system. We have increasingly based our entire criminal justice system on the notion that punishment will reduce crime. And punishment alone as a crime prevention tool on the personal and global level has shown itself to be a complete failure. People bent on punishing each other usually become allied in making each other suffer. So our current criminal justice system is also based on the premise that the punishment of the perpetrator will heal the victim and rehabilitate the perpetrator. And this seems to reflect a collective belief that we hold as a society that contributes to all kinds of interpersonal and systemic dysfunction, the belief that if we can just punish the person, we consider responsible for our anger. Could be our partner, right? Or our victimization. Could be our boss. That we will suffer less. And this premise fails to recognize one of the basic premises of restorative justice. One that I've seen over and over in my work with incarcerated people. It is not the wrongdoer's repentance that creates forgiveness, but it is the victim's forgiveness that creates repentance. It is not the wrongdoer's repentance that creates forgiveness, but it is the victim's forgiveness that creates repentance. I've seen this over and over again. So we have to understand the ways in which victims and oppressors inter are. History has demonstrated that oppressors and victims keep creating and recreating each other. And how victims can often develop in a sense of entitlement that can be just as dangerous as the oppressor's abuse of power. So if we wanted to improve our public safety strategies, if we wanted to think about things from this place of interdependence that I'm talking about, what would we do? Well, I'd like to just briefly outline six things. And then I want you to think about things in the arenas that you're part of, that everybody has to take responsibility for, that would incorporate an understanding of interdependence and responsibility for each other. First, we would educate police officers, victim advocates, attorneys, judges, probation and parole agents, and those working inside prisons about the effects of their careers on themselves and their families over time and provide them 
with some tools to navigate those effects. Second, we would provide them with training that helps them identify how, with even the most honorable of intentions, our unconscious biases can show up in our work in a manner that builds resentments, fuels divisions, and threatens our own safety, as well as the safety of others. Third, we would put more effort into reducing environmental opportunities to commit crimes. We would gather more data to notice patterns and guide the most proactive strategies to take and not simply respond to crime after the fact. Fourth, police officers would and others would be trained to realize that in order to be effective, they cannot rely solely on their authority. Instead, they must depend on a larger, coordinated community effort to provide public safety. And things like arrest and prosecution would be seen as just one of many tools available to achieve a wide range of objectives. Fifth, we would take advantage of the tools that build our associational life and that build our neighborhoods and communities that build their capacities and those that create informal safety nets around people. This includes those coming out of jail or prison and others who are at risk not just as perpetrators but as victims. And there are many creative tools out there right now that I don't see cities and police departments taking advantage of. And I've had the great blessing to be part of implementing many of them in my own community. And sixth, we would think about ways to change existing agreements that marginalize possibility thinking, associational life, and ethical behavior and create new ground rules for behavior with each other, for behavior with the public we serve. So changing the ethical climate of any organization or community requires recognizing not what's down on paper, Right? Not what's in the manual, but the unconscious agreements and unwritten codes of conduct that we socialize each other to in the workplace and bringing them into con the conscious arena for dialogue in order to change those agreements, in order for us all to make conscious choices about them together. So in conclusion, what we offer ourselves and each other every day in our thoughts, our speech, and our actions. These are our life signatures. These are the things that will be here when we no longer are. These life signatures have ripple effects that represent our only continuation in this world that will really matter. And the intention in our minds and hearts always sets the course. It's a radical political act, a radical act to learn how to live in more harmony with everyone and everything. And to change the world or to love everybody is too big an ambition for any single person. But to respond to this moment with engagement and compassion is possible for each and every one of us. You can be the person who makes a difference in a contentious interaction or meeting by bringing a calm, 
steady presence to it. You can be the person who, rather than exasperating pain and violence, transforms it by the way you bear witness to it. You can be the person who, instead of telling others how it should be, brings unconscious and unskillful ways of being into the conscious arena of questions and dialogue. You can be the person who does not gossip or attempt to recruit others to your viewpoint behind closed doors. And most important of all, you can be the person who asks, how am I engaging in the very behavior I am complaining about? So working for peace and justice is a journey. It's a process of learning how to be present with ourselves and others. The best definition of justice I have ever heard came from Dr. Cornell West, who said, justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is what love looks like in public. I love that. And in keeping with that definition, what Thich Nhat Hanh inspired in me was the strong belief that something like carrying a gun for a living can be an act of love if one is also armed with mindfulness and compassion. We do live in challenging times. And at the end of the day, probably the best piece of advice for bringing skillful action to these troubled times comes from my beloved mother-in-law, who is no longer with us. She was absolutely wonderful. And my partner is the youngest of eight. And her mother said to her every day when she left, Maureen, make sure you're kind to everybody. So all we have to do is ask ourselves, is what I am about to do or say watering the seeds of kindness? Thank you for your attention and presence. So we have time for some questions.
anybody have any questions? I'm not sure I understood your comment about, um, if I had it right, violent acts committed with pure intent are not an act of violence. No, what I said are that uh, it's the what distinguishes violence and fierce compassion is the intention behind the action. So, for example, let's say I'm responding to a fight problem. I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm tired of all this, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to up the ante, I'm going to make sure that I use every tool I have to make it not a fair fight, you know, because that's what I'm trained to do. Get these knuckleheads apart from each other, right? And that that's what happens a lot. That's how I responded a lot. But if I go in there with the intent to keep people from hurting each other, I'm still going to break up the fight. And I may still have to use force to do that. But I'm going to be very aware of what I'm doing. It's kind of like uh, changing the foreground and the background. You know, I have friends who live in the middle of the city and they say, well, I want to lock my house. I don't want to lock my car. I want to trust people. And I say, well, I'll tell you, why don't you think about it this way? Why don't you protect them from not stealing by not creating the opportunity? You see the difference? I do, but I'm wondering if your point could be carried in the abstract to a situation where wars are being committed in the interest of a value held by the aggressor who believes that they are right and morally just by asserting their viewpoint and trying to dominate over the other because well, that's a form of violence. That's not fierce compassion. But, you know, we have to be careful here because I'll give you a personal example from my own life. It's very easy for us to be judgmental in situations. And I'll, and I'll give you a couple examples. First one was the first, the very first uh, demonstration I was ever sent to as a cop. I felt very, very relieved because it was an anti-apartheid demonstration. So I was protecting people's right to demonstrate for something. It wasn't at a Ku Klux Klan rally protecting their rights, right? But that, that would have been important, too. That's part of my job, too. However, I get there, and I'm trying to engage the crowd. And uh, we had a very progressive police chief who believed that you know, you don't stand around in riot gear, but you go in and you talk to people. And uh, I went up to, to this guy, and I was going to say something to him, and he spit right in my face. He said, come on, pig, hit me. I know you want to hit me. There's somebody who had very leftist politics and was creating a lot more damage than good. I was, uh, I've been contacted by the Air Force twice now about teaching mindfulness to pilots. And um, I haven't said yes or no because it's brought up a lot for me. Uh, the first thing is, is I don't want to teach 
mindfulness is a concentration practice to help Air Force pilots be better at dropping bombs. But, you know, I also hear people say, under no circumstances should you ever think about supporting the military or doing that. And then I remember at that retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh in 2003 when the police officers did something I'd never seen in my life. They got up and shared from their heart about their experiences being cops, which included some graphic violence. And I got notes from a couple of people say they were very upset about that and how dare we bring that into this retreat, even though it was a retreat for police officers. And that felt like such a slap in the face to me because I thought to myself, you know, someone's got to do this so that you don't have to do this. And with the military, you know, I have two sons in their 20s. I myself am not prepared. Neither one of them are in the military. But I am not prepared to say we, don't, we need no military whatsoever. I'm not prepared to be part of creating the conditions that are responsible, as far as I'm concerned, for Hitler and, and genocide. So I don't know is my answer right now. I don't know. And what I do know is that when I look back on my career and behaviors that make me wince right now, almost every residue of ethical regret that I have comes from being too sure and how I expressed myself when I was too sure. In your own self-work and in working with people who've been taught to maybe use violence and be sure in their use of violence in the past, how do you teach forgiveness of themselves when they are thinking about um, acting differently or doing your work differently? Are you talking about people in prison? Are you talking about people that have been arrested for crimes? Are you talking about police officers? Are you talking? Who are you talking about? Um, Okay. Is <laughs> anybody who has you know, been acting under okay. the assumption that what they're doing is right or if supported by the culture that they work in and live in and how to have compassion and forgiveness for themselves if they're working through? Okay. Well, you know, I've seen some really, really powerful things working uh, with men in uh, maximum security prisons. I've also worked with, with women, but... Um, Restorative justice is about asking three questions. What was the harm? Who was harmed? And how can the harm be repaired? And the harm is seldom about, oftentimes the perpetrator thinks, ah, I need money, you know? And, you know, so you go out, you rob somebody, you need money. Uh, to him, that's usually him. With women, it's usually nonviolent crimes or fraud. Um, but that is a strategy for meeting a need. But what I have found is they often don't think about uh, how it affects that person for the rest of their lives. Who might have had to take off work to take care of that person? What the costs were to the doctor? how it impacted that person in their relationships from then on, how it impacted that person's family, how it impacted the fear 
in, in the level of fear in the neighborhood, how it impacted people's basic sense of safety. And that's what restorative justice is, is you help people understand that. And I have seen, you, and the way that it worked with, with how we did it is I have seen victims of sexual assaults, of robberies, uh, of many different kinds of crime come in and share their stories. Not necessarily with the perpetrators that they were victimized by, but they share their stories from wanting this experience to mean something more than simply being a victim. And it's incredibly powerful. These guys are amazing when that happens. Um, and I've seen it. I've seen it with the youth courts we have too, and the restorative justice model that the kids use. Restorative justice can be used, I think, in ways that it's not being used uh, to create circles. When we've had incidents in communities where police officers and people don't understand why this happened and don't understand each other. They don't have the means to communicate. That's restorative justice, to heal those things. What was the harm? Who was harmed? How can the harm be prepared? Be repaired? So I always start there. And you know, the other thing is, is how the media shows things. Uh, you know, I like the new Hawaii Five-O, right? You know, McGarrett's a cool guy. But you know, McGarrett and Daniel, they go out and they shoot somebody up every, you know, week and don't think anything of it the next week. I have never, ever known a police officer who had to take somebody's life that recovered from it. Most of them end up going out on disabilities. This isn't, you know, the average kid by the time they're 12, see, what is it now? I think like 13,000 deaths or murders on TV. I mean, you know, we're just, violence doesn't mean anything to us. So there are all kinds of things when we want to take responsibility collectively for it and not just blame somebody else that we can do. Yes? Have you ever had the opportunity to teach mindfulness and justice? Yes. Did you observe that? Well, what I have found with... Um, with people in the, the criminal justice arena, uh, in particular, it, it doesn't matter if it's judges, attorneys, um, cops. There's a little bit of uh, prosecutors. There's a slightly different thing um, that happens with each audience. But what you have to under what you all of us want to be seen for who we are. No, that's one of the things that the whole premise of, I think it's called compassionate communication now, was nonviolent communication starts with, is that we all have needs. And that we all, those needs are universal. And that we need to connect with each other around those needs. So what I do with criminal justice professionals is I let them know that I understand their world. I don't try to tell them how they should be doing things. I try to create some mutual understanding and an exploration with them together. I don't talk about mindfulness as much as I talk about 
maybe health and wellness. Or let's talk about what happens to us over the course of our careers. Can you relate to this? Uh, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm in a group of, uh, when I train police officers, I'll say, well, let's do a word association test. What's the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word Boy Scout leader? What do you think they say? Pedophile. The whole room screams pedophile out because those are the Boy Scout leaders they see. Okay, well, let's take, let's take a cynicism ratio. How many times in any given day do you say bullshit? What's the training about some bullshit? I don't know. Um, you know, I do little things. It's just, I just show them that I can relate to their world. I understand their world, and then we go from there. So, you know, when I worked with the Madison Police Department, what happened is I was in charge of all training. It was a great place to be in, and I got to determine what training people were going to have, what ongoing training they were going to have to keep their law enforcement license. And so some of it was this emotional training that I'm talking about. Um, and then I said, okay, here's what happens now. I'm going to offer you, I'm going to come in at the beginning of each shift and I'm going to offer you some tools that will help you deal with this kind of stress. With the kinds of experiences you have on a daily basis. You don't have to come. I had 100 officers take me up on it when I came in for all four shifts at the beginning. And it's really something to say, okay, first thing I want you to do is take your bulletproof vest off. That in itself is quite symbolic. Um, judges, you know, I'm going to find another judge to talk to before I go do just a group of judges. Um, but, you know, judges are a different kind of animal because uh, some of them have what I call black robe disease. Um, they're used to people being very, very differential. Um, others... So, you know, coordinated community responses where you start including lots of people from different arenas in your response helps change the consciousness of everybody participating. But I think uh, with judges, where I've had judges has been more in a, I do a lot of training for criminal justice professionals and they'll show up as part of that training. Uh, we have one judge now who's part of our sangha. Uh, uh, a couple, uh, two or three that come to just about every retreat that I do in Madison now. So you know, basically that's what we all have to do. We all have to translate the language in the arenas that we understand best. We all have to find creative ways to do that and be engaged in possibility thinking. You want a curriculum? You can talk to me later. Probably need to end now. Maybe just a short question or a comment. If there's anything left. Um, have you ever encountered in the police force or in other groups people who are really attached to the collective, the collective um, fatalism or suffering or? You know, like a, you know, someone's buddy was killed in the line of duty, or just like a, like, 
this sort of fatalism that people sometimes can get really attached to in a group? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not just police officers that go to bars after work and tell war stories. You know, everybody has their own version of a war story. And everybody has their own version of Ain't It Awful. And uh, some of that is release. Some of it has a constructive thing. And some of it is, is very, very destructive. And that's where we have to make personal decisions about, one, who are our friends going to be? Are they just going to be people like us? Or are they going to be people from lots of different walks of life? Um, but yeah, that can happen very, very easily. And we also have to help people deal with trauma when it happens. Post-traumatic stress or secondary stress is very real for people in these professions. There has to be a culture created where people can get help for it, or it starts to poison the whole culture. Any advice on, on shifting that culture? Yes. You know, when, when that's what I was talking about when you call the unconscious and unwritten agreement. Uh, and bring them, you don't tell people how to do it. I remember when I was a, a sergeant, my, uh, when I was first promoted to sergeant, they stuck me out in a platoon of like all guys working nights, most of them veterans that didn't think very highly of having a woman in charge of them. And I started to notice on my way into work that there were Lots of cars parked at this one particular PDQ. Looked horrible, right? And I knew exactly what was going on. They were all getting free coffee and free stuff there. So in exchange, the PDQ is like what we used to refer to as stop and rob, you know, convenience stores. Um, and they often do get robbed at night. And so not only does this look like crap, but it, it's not a very ethical thing to do is to require freebies to give somebody protection. So I, you know, I can go tell them, hey, knock it off and create even more tension between myself and them. Or, you know, I can do something like at my next platoon meeting say, you know what, I just want to talk about this and we'll decide together. But I'm noticing, and I was socialized to this from the day I came out of the academy with my field training officer. When you don't, you call, you go to the place that gives free coffee. Okay, so it's happening. I know it's not in the policy manual anywhere. I'd say it a little different than this, and I'd be funnier about it. Um, but um, I just wanted us to talk about it. What do you think? They made their own decisions. That it was not... A, different words on this, but it wasn't very ethical behavior. And I didn't see those cars at there, there anymore. Um, I chose to, I, when I was the captain of personnel and training, I said, got my team together, my team of 10, and I said, you know what, I know what has been the single hardest thing for me in this police department. And it's how we talk about each other. It's the politics of the workplace. So how about if we try to do it different? How about if we have a complaint, we actually bring it to somebody who can do something about it, or we talk about it as a team? 
But we can't do it unless we all want to do it. And unless we're all willing to police ourselves. Best team situation I've ever worked in. No, this is where we, we, we can come out and complain about bad meetings. Or we can realize that we're part of the meeting that we're criticizing and make it a good meeting by our behavior in the meeting. We're, we're, we are not just the effective things. We're good. And we all bear some responsibility for understanding that kind of interdependence. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much, Sherry, for coming. And uh, great thanks to the Blooming Heart Sangha who made the event happen, brought Sherry to town. We do have a reception if you'd like to stay along, have a cup of tea and some snacks and meet some people in the community. You're welcome to stay for that. Thanks again, Sherry. Thank you. I appreciate Thank you. you being here. Go forth and do great things. <laughs>